You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The Tampa Bay Rays are seeking a new location for a baseball park. Now, this has been going on for a while, but could the final answer be to remain right where they are and build new? The city of St. Petersburg says that's the best solution. We'll learn more about the proposal. Most of us are under the impression the city of Los Angeles simply rolled out the red carpet when the Dodgers moved there in the late 1950s. But the real story is much more complicated and infinitely more interesting. Professor and author Gerald Padere introduces the real story from his new book, Looking for some unique baseball adventures this year? Author Josh Pahigian tells us where you'll find them. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran reports on a true rarity in sports. Two major arenas in one town going offline simultaneously. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, it will be an historic weekend at L.A.'s Dodgers Stadium. For the first time ever, the iconic ballpark will feature a statue honoring one of the game's greats. Jackie Robinson's likeness will be unveiled on the 70th anniversary of the day he broke baseball's color barrier. It'll be Jackie Robinson Day at Chavez Ravine, with the first 40,000 fans receiving a Robinson replica statue. The home of the NFL's Arizona Cardinals is getting a new name. The University of Phoenix, which currently owns naming rights, will prematurely end its 20-year sponsorship deal that was signed back in 2006. The school is backing out of the deal as it struggles to maintain enrollment levels. University of Phoenix Stadium, which just hosted the Final Four, will keep that name until a new sponsorship deal is reached. Two area companies have pitched multi-million dollar plans to remake Seattle's Key Arena into a premier venue to attract the NBA or NHL. The city received two proposals this week ahead of a deadline to renovate the 55-year-old facility. The NBA's Supersonics last played in the arena before moving to Oklahoma City in 2008. This comes as investor Chris Hansen continues to work on building a new arena near downtown's Safeco Field and CenturyLink Field. And the city of St. Louis has filed a lawsuit against the National Football League over the Rams' relocation to Los Angeles. The city alleges the league violated its own relocation guidelines at the expense of the community it left behind. The suit names all 32 teams and their owners and seeks extensive damages and restitution. The NFL says there is no legitimate basis for the lawsuit and that they worked diligently with St. Louis officials in a process they called honest and fair. Bill, that's the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Something of a surprise this past week coming from St. Petersburg. 
where it looks as if the city has decided to go after the Rays and keep them with their own stadium proposal. And it looks like they're pretty serious about it. We're going to find out just how serious they are from Noah Pransky, a longtime investigative reporter and sports reporter at one time in his career at WTSP TV Channel 10 in Tampa, St. Petersburg. Noah, always a pleasure to visit. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me, Bill. It is a pleasure. From a glance of the situation here, it looks like St. Petersburg means business, although there are a lot of details as of yet unknown. What do we know? You know, the the surprise really was only in the timing. Uh, there was a very short notice given, but we knew a presentation was coming, and we knew there'd be some pretty pictures. So for the first time, we saw how St. Petersburg was visualizing a new Tampa Bay Rays stadium in downtown, uh, right next to the current stadium, which, as we know, has some location problems. However, the bigger picture here is that neither Tampa nor St. Pete has a whole lot of money to put toward this thing, but St. Petersburg does have a lot more if they want to entice the Rays. So while St. Petersburg would appear to be the less desirable location from a uh, looking at it at a central standpoint, you want to be closer, obviously, to the most number of people, which would be in Tampa. St. Petersburg's big advantage is that they have a much better financing plan put together, mm-hmm. and frankly, probably better than Tampa ever could put together. They have both robust visitor bed taxes coming in from their beaches, and uh, St. Petersburg, Pinellas County also have some other avenues to entice the Rays. And St. Petersburg kind of trotted this out uh, this past week when they said that they would really help the Rays develop commercial and retail around the stadium. Um, And that really, these days, if you follow a lot of these stadium issues, that's where teams are making their money these days, not necessarily in the stadium as much anymore. They're making a lot of money outside of the stadium, both capturing the retail and helping develop commercial. What I saw, which was linked directly from your Shadow of the Stadium blog, was long on the potential for business development in the immediate area, but very short on stadium design itself. As a matter of fact, I didn't see much of anything there. Well, the Rays have been saying that they don't want to talk about money in specifics yet. They want to find a location first. Um, that plays the team's advantage and kind of a taxpayer's disadvantage at times. But for now, St. Petersburg is kind of negotiating against itself, saying, hey, Rays, if you want to come here, here's an opening bid. It's very lucrative. This will help you pay for a stadium, which Tampa doesn't seem to be able to offer. Now, if you like this location, then you can do what you want with it. We'll be your partners. We'll help develop both the property and this facility. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's going to be the Rays who are driving ballpark development inside the building. You know, it is interesting when you look at the layout of the Tampa Bay area on the larger sense, there are some parts of it that are very accessible to uh, St. Petersburg. You know, you have Clearwater just up the coast, and there are a number of communities, particularly the communities along the western edge and the beach areas. There's a significant population there. Is that enough that it serves as a solid base going forward for this team? It's tough to say. It's it's a difficult market in the sense that we have a lot of transient population. So a lot of people come here with other loyalties to teams up north frequently. Um, the other issue is that Tampa Bay is the 11th largest media market, which is a great thing for a team to be able to tap into. And the TV ratings and radio ratings have been decent for the, the Rays for years. 
However, geographically, it's very spread out. And when you have a transient population that may not be a diehard population, that may not be sports fanatics who grew up with this team, the appetite to drive 30 or 60 minutes for a game isn't what it is in New York, Boston, St. Louis, and your more traditional markets. So the Rays are dealing with a demographics issue. If they stay in St. Petersburg, there's uh, almost a million people in Pinellas County, and uh, some folks in, you know, right in the urban core of Tampa can get there within half an hour, too. But that still puts them at a major disadvantage when it comes to selling tickets and selling things inside the stadium when compared to the rest of the league. Uh, the, the fraction, it's really a fraction of people who live within 30 minutes of Tropicana Field compared to the other stadiums in, in the league. And if they moved to Tampa, that would increase the number, but not drastically, frankly. Um, it, would be a, it would be a good improvement. There's only a million point two people in Hillsborough County. So mm-hmm. it's like you're almost trading one problem for a slightly less big problem, but it's still going to be an issue for them getting people to the stadium. Traffic isn't great here. The appetite to sit in traffic and drive a long way for a game on a weeknight is pretty poor. So the Rays have to address those issues. Um, but one way to address their real problem, which isn't necessarily attendance, the real problem is revenue. Attendance helps. But if they can address revenue by getting into the real estate game with their partners in St. Petersburg, they may be able to find a resolution here. What is the timing on this? Now, I know this process has dragged out. We've talked about it in several previous interviews. Going forward, how much time will it take for this to actually play out for a decision to be made? I wouldn't expect anything anytime soon. Uh, We're probably at least three years away from having a stadium, at the very least, and probably Mm -hmm. more than that. Mm -hmm. The Rays are not in any big rush right now to push this because, you know, they're going to benefit the more that there are competing interests. Right now, Hillsborough County and the city of Tampa don't really have anything on the table. Um, so I would expect this season to kind of play out, and maybe next off offseason uh, they take a real hard look at what their options are, and then then they're going to have to have some tough conversations with themselves whether the real estate opportunities in St. Petersburg are worth staying in a location that they know is a little less than ideal because of proximity. Noah, we want to thank you. Continued success with your blog, Shadow of the Stadium. I'm very proud to tell you that I am now following, and I encourage everybody else to do the same. Thanks, Bill. Noah Pransky, our guest from WTSP Television in Tampa, St. Pete. Now, coming up, the politics behind the building of L.A. Dodgers Stadium, right here on SB Nation Radio. Would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. You see it on the pages of your local newspaper, a ballot measure for a new stadium, a purchase of land, uh, the moving in and out of people, 
all of the things we associate with modern stadium construction. But if you wind the clock back a number of years, many of these things happened in a major sense for the first time when Dodger Stadium was constructed in Los Angeles. It is a fascinating story, and that story is available for your consumption and enjoyment in a book called City of Dreams, Dodger Stadium and the Birth of Modern Los Angeles, and we're going to visit with the author of that book. He is a professor of history at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, beautiful Appleton, and we're going to visit with Gerald Padere, who joins us. Gerald, what a fascinating book. You are a baseball fan and a person who loves it. How did you tie into this story? How did it capture your imagination? Well, Bill, uh, I'm a native New Yorker, and so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm well aware of the, the story of the Brooklyn Dodgers moving to Los Angeles. And I originally set out to write a book about, uh, about that move and about Walter O'Malley. But once I started into the Los Angeles portion of the story, what happened to the Dodgers after they got to Los Angeles, which really hasn't been written about very much, the, the, uh, the, the Brooklyn side of the story has been written about a lot, mm-hmm. I became fascinated with that story because the legend or the myth is that, well, when Walter O'Malley and the Dodgers got to Los Angeles, everything was easy for them. They built the stadium, it was fine, and there were no problems, uh, smooth sailing. But what I found out when I started my research is it was the exact opposite. Their time in Los Angeles trying to build that stadium was incredibly difficult uh, and incredibly fractious, uh, and it seemed to basically divide the city of Los Angeles in half. Can you take us through what Chavez Ravine was actually all about and and the actual uh, battle, in a sense, that took place there? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Bill. Chavez Ravine was a traditional Mexican-American community, basically for the first, the first half of the 20th century, that I always called uh, hidden in plain sight uh, because it was about a mile from downtown Los Angeles, and you could pretty much walk from Dodger Stadium to downtown Los Angeles, but very little attention was being paid to it until around 1949-1950. Uh, they decided to build a public housing project at Chavez Ravine, and they evicted most of the residents of this very traditional Mexican-American community. But then for various reasons, they decided not to build the uh, housing project, and the land just uh, lay there uh, for a couple of years until they decided in 1957, uh, this will be the place where the new Dodger Stadium uh, will be built. There were still a number of families who had refused to leave uh, and were on the land. And what happened was in 1959, uh, they were removed forcibly from Chavez Ravine uh, in an incident that still resonates in the uh, Los Angeles Latino community, what, what's known as the Battle of Chavez Ravine. And they were forcibly uh, removed so that the uh, stadium could be built. So it was built with a tremendous amount of civic controversy, but it was also built with uh, with racial controversy. Now, the city of Los Angeles and not the Dodgers were the actual evictors uh, here, but the way, the, the way life goes, uh, it's the Dodgers who have been associated with the evictions of Chavez Ravine, even though they didn't, uh, they didn't directly carry them out. 
but it's interesting because the Latino community in Los Angeles, as it turns out, I think have been the most loyal Dodger fans. I mean, when Fairweather fans come and go, the Latino community in Los Angeles uh, sticks with the Dodgers. So it's sort of a two-edged sword with uh, Latinos in Los Angeles. They're, they're still bitter over the evictions in Chavez Ravine, uh, but they're also uh, real, really good Dodger fans. Fascinating. Let's talk about the stadium itself. What's the secret sauce about this stadium that makes it so special? Well, one of the secrets is that you had an owner, O'Malley, who knew that since this was going to be his stadium and not a municipal stadium, he had to sweat the details. Uh, uh, He had an engineering background. uh, He was interested in architecture. So O'Malley's hand is in pretty much every aspect of the construction of the stadium. First of all, he understands that the physical setting is very important. And if you go to Dodger Stadium, you can see the skyline uh, uh, and also the mountains. That is really important, uh, just what a spectator is going to see. But in other aspects, the, the stadium is, is, is really just about the first truly modern stadium uh, that existed. We take for granted, for example, no poles. Uh, uh, There are no poles in the new stadium. Well, uh, up until Dodger Stadium, uh, most stadiums had poles. They were eliminated in Dodger Stadium. Uh, Most stadiums had very long climbs to the upper deck. Uh, uh, If you had uh, entered Ebbets Field, for example, in Brooklyn, uh, and you were going to the upper deck, you had a climb. But uh, Dodger Stadium, because the field was scooped into the ground, uh, you would enter Dodger Stadium uh, pretty much in the middle of the stadium. So you would have a bit of a walk up or a bit of a walk down, but that was much more convenient for, uh, you know, for the fans. O'Malley uh, had his employees study Disneyland as he was planning Dodger Stadium. They incorporated an, uh, a number of the best features of Disneyland. Uh, once you enter Dodger Stadium and the organ music is playing and the sun is setting over the mountains uh, and everybody is polite and everybody is pleasant, uh, you leave your troubles behind and you leave your cares behind. You don't bring them into the stadium. And I think Dodger Stadium under the O'Malley's deliberately uh, and, and intentionally tried to create that atmosphere. Uh, ticket prices are very, very low. Uh, O'Malley's uh, philosophy was get them into the building. Uh, And if you get them into the building, they'll spend. They'll spend on concessions. They'll spend on souvenirs. And all of that money went to the Dodgers and went to the O'Malley's. So uh, for many years, it was a 350, 250, 150 price structure. That price structure lasted into the late 1970s. And that is also a secret, I think, to packing Dodger Stadium oriented towards families with low ticket prices. You know, there's a a famous Jesuit saying, uh, give me the child uh, when he is five and I will give you the child for life. (laughs) Uh, Meaning, uh, meaning uh, if you get someone when they're young, uh, Mm -hmm. their culture is, 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 is pretty much fixed by then and their attitudes are fixed. Well, O'Malley basically said, uh, give me the child when he is five. Let me get him into Dodger Stadium, and I will have a Dodger fan for life. And the way to get them in is to have his parents bring him, have women be comfortable in the stadium, you know, in a family atmosphere. They were not particularly comfortable in Ebbets Field, but have them comfortable in Dodger Stadium, have events for women, uh, orient towards families with low ticket prices, get the five-year-olds in, and the five-year-olds, when they grow up, are going to take their kids and their grandkids, and it will, you know, it will make a lot of money. So I think that's the secret sauce in terms of – 
making Dodger Stadium, at least under the O'Malley's, uh, as successful as it was. Gerald Padere, who is a history professor at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. He has written the book City of Dreams, Dodger Stadium, and the Birth of Modern Los Angeles. We thank him and a very, very wonderful visit. Now, stay tuned. Coming up next, it is a pleasure, Gerald, and thank you. And stay tuned, because coming up next, Mark Madoran and I will talk shop. We'll go to the water cooler and find out what people are talking about in the stadium profession next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It is time to talk shop once again as we examine the week's stadium headlines. And for that, we welcome in Mark Medoran, the president and creator of Stadiums USA. StadiumsUSA.com is your one-stop shop for stadium news and information. And you can listen to the podcasts of this program or any previous ones right on the site. Mark, we have a very unusual stadium circumstance to lead the program, the closing of two great arenas simultaneously in the same city. That city is Detroit. Both Joe Louis Arena and the Palace of Auburn Hills are going offline. Give us some historical context on this. Well, actually, it has happened once before. Remember back to New York City, the Giants and Dodgers both closed their doors uh, in the same week and uh, both transpired to move to California. Hmm. And uh, the the famous Ebbets Field and uh, the, the historied uh, polo grounds both uh, closed and closed permanently, were never reopened uh, for events at that point. So uh, this time, the major sports venues in Detroit are closing. We're talking about the Red Wings at Joe Louis Arena for 38 seasons and very successful seasons at that. Uh, four Stanley Cups. The Pistons are leaving Auburn Hills. They had three championships in that building. Mm-hmm. You're very familiar with the Palace, so oh, yeah. why do you give us your memories? Well, you know, I wanted that, to talk that, about that, Mark. Joe Louis Arena, of course, has a lot of championship success in there. The, really, the term hockey town was born in there. But the Palace in Auburn Hills, in my opinion, more than any other sports facility in America, truly influenced the design of indoor arenas. This was the first building to get skyboxes right, and it changed everything, I thought. Mark, we have some inaccuracies in the reporting of fan attendance at stadiums and ballparks. This brings up an old issue that goes back many years and used to be a dividing line between the American and National League and baseball. 
Attendance is a key component for sports leagues, so much so that the number that we see at the bottom of the box score indicates directly what the attendance is, and that has become, shall we say, politicized. Let's dig into that a little bit, Mark, because I know this is a hot-button issue for you. It is. I'm on a campaign. (laughs) I want to challenge all the major sports leagues, the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, and I suppose NASCAR and and others to a smaller extent, but particularly Mm -hmm. the NFL and Major League Baseball. I see a box score coming off of every game. And at the bottom of the box, it says how long it took to play the game, but it also lists a number. Sometimes it just says A, Mm -hmm. but usually it says attendance. And that attendance number has been listed historically on a box score, as far as I can tell, for at least 100 years in baseball. And over the years, that number used to represent in the National League for sure the number of people that were attending the game. In the American League, it seems they reported tickets sold. And then back in 1992, the American League owners convinced the National League owners, hey, it's silly to report the number of people. The number looks bigger if you show tickets. Mm -hmm. So both sides of Major League Baseball show tickets sold. NFL shows tickets sold. But since the term is attendance, and it implies how many people attended, We think they should show the actual attendance number, not the tickets sold. And what we'd like to see done is I'd like to see both numbers reported. Show us how many people paid for tickets and then show us how many people used the tickets to attend the actual game. That way we could come up with an accurate idea of how many people were in the ballpark that day. Um, I went last year to a box score for the Chicago Bears in Chicago versus the Green Bay Packers in December. They did not have a good day as far as attendance. The box score shows 61,137. That's the attendance. But we know, having watched the game, that there were probably 25,000 less than that number. Show us both numbers. Tell us how many people bought tickets and tell us how many people used the tickets to actually attend. Have your cake and eat it too. That's what we're suggesting, right? Exactly. (laughs) The numbers at at this point are strictly for amusement. We know that their financial models don't um, hinge on attendance any longer. Mm -hmm. The NFL, certainly their numbers are from broadcasting as far as uh, their income numbers are much greater than probably their numbers from ticket sales. And so we know that this isn't an indication of how they're doing financially, but it is a point of reference as how many people are actually attending the games. And it's Mm -hmm. something fans do keep an eye on. And we note at the end of the year who draws the most fans. It's listed every day in Major League Baseball as far as attendance. So um, the totals are kept and and noted each year. So if we're going to do that, we need to count the number of people at the games, not count how many tickets got sold. And sometimes that number includes tickets distributed for free to charities and uh, Mm -hmm. marketing purposes as well. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Mark, each year Forbes releases a list of Major League Baseball franchise values. They rate them from top to bottom, and it's interesting to look at that each year, and it just came out for this year. Let's dig into that list. What does it show? Well, it's an interesting list every year. 
the new average for a major league baseball team is $1.54 billion. That's up about 19% over the previous year. Wow. Why has the number jumped so much? Local broadcasting rights have escalated dramatically and income from other cable sources for a lot of teams have brought the numbers up as well. The Yankees, for example, are now shown at $3.7 billion. The Dodgers are in second place at $2.75 billion. Hmm. And as we remember, they were just sold a couple of years ago. The Cubs have jumped up dramatically and they've jumped up to $2.68 billion, I think partly because the strength of winning a world championship. Sure. Well, the Wayback Machine is open, Mark. Let's jump in and take a look at some of the important dates in stadium history. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. This week in 1962, the first regular season game is played at Dodger Stadium. As we just talked about the move to the West Coast, the Dodgers lose 6-3 to three to Cincinnati. Uh, in 1962, the first ever Major League Baseball game is played in Houston. Uh, in their debut, the Houston Colt 45s beat the Cubs at now-demolished Colt Stadium. <laughs> now, let's head to the Stadium's USA Trivia Department to test your knowledge of stadium and ballpark trivia one of your favorite areas oh yes mark and uh, all set to take a whack at it okay we were discussing dodger stadium earlier in the program in the history of the ballpark five home runs have been hit completely out of dodger stadium one player has actually done it twice can you name the only big leaguer to hit the ball out of dodger stadium two different times was it willie mccovey was it Mark McGuire? Mm-hmm. Was it Willie Stargell? Or was it Mike Piazza? I'm, I have to guess on this one, but there's something ringing in the back of my head that says it was Willie Stargell. So that's what I am going to go with. Obviously, all four of these gentlemen were great home run hitters. It wasn't Mark McGuire. So I'm, I think it was Stargell. You are correct. No! Willie Stargell of the Pirates in 1969 off Dodgers' <laughs> Alan Foster hit the ball completely out of the ballpark <laughs> over the right field pavilion and struck a bus in the parking lot. <laughs> and then again in 1973 off Andy Messersmith, he did the same thing. It bounced off a roof uh, beyond the right field pavilion and into the parking lot. So you are correct. Willie Stargell is the correct answer. Well, what can I say except uh, I had heard that somewhere and it popped back at the appropriate time. I finally got some use out of that factoid, Mark. Enjoy your week, Bill. Okay, Mark, you too. Mark Madoran, we talk shop. Now, coming up, stay tuned because we continue our tour of ballparks across America. We'll hear about it next on SB Nation Radio. for an amazing baseball adventure. That's what most of us will be experiencing in the spring and summer. But there's one man who has already beaten us there. 
He's anticipated what we're looking for, and he's written a wonderful book to help us experience. Josh Pahigian has been on the program before. His book is The Amazing Baseball Adventure, Ballpark Wonders from the Bushes to the Show. And this is uh, considered to be one of the complete guides, perhaps the most complete guide, to the most cherished ballparks at all levels. And how do you think the ballpark experience has changed today as compared to that which we may have experienced, what, 15, 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, so I'm in my mid-40s, and of course I remember going to Fenway Park as early as like the 1980s, um, you know, before I started, obviously long before I started traveling the country going to parks. I think, you know, especially at the big league level, it's become a little bit more noticeably a commercial venture, which is understandable. They're paying so much for the players, you know, in terms of the, the signage and the in-between um, innings and in-between batters, um, sort of commercial announcements. Uh, it's a little louder at the big league parks these days, too, in terms of, like, the, the walk-up music and not even the players' walk-up music. But, um, you know, it seems like I, I like the sounds of the game and the, the, the old organ that you still hear at a couple of parks, but, but not like you used to. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's so much blaring noise at the parks these days. I kind of harken back to a time um, when the, the, the stadium um, game day entertainment, um, especially at the big league level, did, didn't blast you with sound. But, you know, that would be one observation I've made. A lot of people have complained about the pace of games, and I guess that's maybe a product of our declining attention spans in this uh, Twitter era and do-it-fast, send-me-a-text era. Everyone wants games to be quicker. And I guess I kind of have mixed feelings on that. I, As a fan, especially when I'm at the park, I remember as a kid hoping games would go into extra innings just so I would get a little extra baseball. Um, and I still don't mind a long game if I have it on the radio while I'm doing something around the house or even if, you know, especially when I'm at the park, I don't mind a longer game. So I don't think they need to worry about the um, pace of game as, as much as some people say. But that's that's just my opinion. I know that's a big emphasis these days. I think some of the best promotions have come at some of the poorer or older ballparks. I think back mm. to when they closed down uh, the Stadium Scheib Park in Philadelphia and how wild that all got. I think of a stadium yeah. like Oakland's, for example. We know they're going to get a new park. I think of Mike Vec. You know, they played in that older ballpark for sure. a long time. They've only been in the new one there in uh, St. Mm. Paul for a couple of years. Uh, right. Does a poorer park really help to put the spotlight on a promotion you know i think the fans get especially the promotion the ballpark um, eccentricities that arise from the fans or from the team sort of lend themselves to teams that are maybe not first place teams if you're in first place and you have a beautiful new park you're probably focused on winning i'm thinking of like the uh, mr john adams the indians beloved drummer mm-hmm. since since 1973 you know he started at the mistake by the lake right oh yes um old municipal stadium that's another good example of a not so great park where a really neat fan tradition began mm-hmm. um that that still exists at their new park um you know i think maybe the fans in sort of bleak times get a little more creative. You, you mentioned the A's, too. They have the right field uh, bleacher brigade of, of crazy fans that show up even the, even when they know the team's not going anywhere. Um, they show up and have flags that they're waving and colorful costumes and noisemakers. Um, you know, I think there's some camaraderie and sort of identity that emerges um, when you stand by your team, even if you know the stadium's a dump, even if you know the team's not really going anywhere. 
you know, I think that maybe those um, less successful teams in stadiums do lend themselves to a little bit more innovation, as you say. Josh, we're going to be seeing the new Atlanta Braves ballpark in suburban Atlanta, Cobb County, coming online. Any expectations there? You know, I don't know too much about it. Although I saw the team visited a a couple days before the regular season started, and the players had really um, rave reviews for it. Saw some of the Braves on uh, MLB Network, you know, like Teary Eye, talking about how beautiful it was. So I'm eager to see it. I'm not positive I'll make it down there um, this summer, but but I hope to. It, it's on my list of parks to see soon. I guess I have, I have mixed feelings. I, I liked Turner Field. I didn't see any huge problems with it. I, I think the geography of it is something the team um, wanted to change. They wanted to get to the suburbs and, and maybe where they thought there was more more money in terms of a fan base that would support mm-hmm. the uh, team. Um, but it didn't seem like a park, um, like some of the parks that are still out there, like Oakland's or like um, Olympic Stadium was at the end, you know, those parks that I would visit and say, boy, this place needs to be replaced soon. Let me ask you if you have one spot that you have not been that's high on your list to get to here in the future. Is there one that really stands out? Yeah, there is, and I don't know how soon I'm going to get there. I I would love to do a tour of the um, Nippon Professional Baseball League's ballparks in Japan. Uh, That's kind of my personal bucket list right now. I've never um, traveled to the Far East, and I I would love to do a uh, Japanese ballpark tour someday. So that is kind of my big um, bucket list uh, trip. And right now I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old at home, and um, I'm on, on a little bit shorter leash as far as summer travel um, <laughs> goes than I used to be. But I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe when my kids are old enough to tag along or maybe when um, maybe when they're off to school and a little bit older, I'll, um, I'll be able to do a grand tour of Japan and maybe write a book about it. There you go. Well, sell a million copies of it, will you, Josh? <laughs> then I can go to Japan next year. I'll, That's right. I'll retire and bring the family. Josh, continued success. All the best. Many thanks, Bill. Enjoy the season. It's baseball season. Play ball. Oh, you know I'm going to do that. Josh Pahigian is our guest. The amazing baseball adventure. Bill Hazen inviting you to come on back and be with us next week and tell a friend, too. But right now, we have a full day of sports coverage. And that is coming up right here on SB Nation Radio. 